life. Infinitely fragile, and yet often deceptively mundane, somehow in the same space. Or more like the same time. Time. The most precious currency we have, no matter how hard a bargain you drive, you can never get it back. We trade it for people and power and things, hoping that in the end we'll understand what it means to live. But sometimes the end is a surprise, one we couldn't predict or expect, regardless of all our calendars and notifications. There are still some things beyond the reach of our front right pocket. So, if the author of time and of space stood before you today, and with the words of his son he told you that your soul was required of you not this night, but in thirty-five minutes, if your heart. Was laid down in its proverbial deathbed, and you had this one final opportunity to leave a word of wisdom and of passion with those you loved most. What message would burn inside you, worth the finite breaths and fleeting moments you have left? Prepared to set the stage for that question because、uh, that's what my job was for that video. But I was、uh, not planning to answer the question.、Uh, I wasn't supposed to speak during this series,、um, but I guess I was supposed to speak during this series. <laughs>、uh, you know, it wasn't the plan, but plans change like they often do. And、uh, I just got to let you know that、um, I'm coming before you、uh, pretty, pretty broken and humbled by God. Uh, as in my time preparing this week, he showed me just how wrong I've been thinking and, and treating the, the subject at hand today. So, for those of you who don't know, my name is Seth, and I serve as the creative pastor here at Heart of the City. And、uh, this message is called "When Time Touches Eternity." We're going to be looking at two primary passages today. We're going to be look at Luke chapter twelve and Matthew chapter six. Now these two passages,、um, obviously, completely different、um, gospel accounts, or I shouldn't say completely different, very similar, but two different gospel accounts.、Um, and these two passages, they they likely took place at different times as well,、um, being that the context is described very differently.、Um, but it appears as that they're both a part of of a teaching that Jesus probably preached many times throughout his ministry. Um, we see it at least twice, but it's it's likely that he taught it、uh, a lot more than that. Even、um, times that perhaps were not documented.、Uh, the passage in Matthew chapter six is、uh, part of his famous Sermon on the Mount. A lot of us will have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. It's 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 I think partly so famous because it appears to be a, a place where Jesus kind of gives his thesis for his ministry. It's like this grand introduction of, of Jesus, who he is, and, and the new covenant that he's bringing. And then in the Luke passage, we have this time where Jesus 
was surrounded by his disciples, and all of a sudden this huge crowd comes and gathers around them, and he's primarily addressing his disciples. But someone from the crowd interrupts him, and he interrupts them to to tell Jesus to make a judgment about an inheritance that was being dispersed between brothers. And so Jesus responds with a parable. Now, because I believe that these two passages are really a part of the same teaching, I'm going to read them as a continuation of one another today. And that is the parable of the rich fool and an exhortation to not worry about the future. So we'll start in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then continuing in Matthew 6, starting in verse 26. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I think that verse is probably worth reading again. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour? hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Gentiles just being not Jewish people. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your beautiful, precious word. We thank you for the freedom to preach it publicly, to be able to listen without fear of retribution. God, we thank you that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and that if we will come before you humbly, you will lay our hearts wide open, and you will transform us. We pray, Lord, that 
today you would renew our minds and teach us to think about time in a way that you would have us think about time. Show us your heart and make us new. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, in just a moment, we're going to read a fairly lengthy excerpt from, from a book. And I typically wouldn't read such a long ex- excerpt, um, but, I, but I think it, it's just, it just speaks so perfectly to this subject that, that, I, that I must. And you, you might have heard of this book. It's called The Screwtape Letters. Uh, we've quoted it before uh, in preaching here. It's a book that was published by C.S. Lewis in 1942. And it's a very, very interesting book, the way that it's written, for those of you who know. It's, it's a very unique perspective. It's a book, it's, a, it's what would be called a theological satire. And it's about two demons. And it's not just about two demons, it's actually rich, written from the perspective of one of the demons, an older demon named Screwtape, or Uncle Screwtape, because he's writing these letters and to mentor this younger demon named Wormwood about the intricacies of tempting and deceiving humankind. So as we, as we read this book, it's important to note that C.S. Lewis, through, through these words, he's actually revealing theological truths just from the perspective of an enemy of God rather than a disciple of God, which we're not totally used to. So as we're reading, it's an, it, it, make sure that you, you can grasp that when it uses the word enemy, screw tape is talking about God. Because from his perspective as a demon, God is his ultimate enemy. And, and every insight that he gives to Wormwood is with the intent and, and with the thought behind sabotaging. The thought behind it is to sabotage humankind. So with that in mind, the screw tape letters. The humans live in time, but our enemy, God, destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. With this in view, we sometimes tempt a human to live in the past. But this is of limited value. For they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determinate nature, and to that extent, resembles eternity. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already, so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. 
It is the most completely temporal part of time. For the past is frozen and no longer flows. And the present is all lit up by eternal rays. Nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. But fear, lust, and ambition look forward. To be sure, the enemy wants men to think of the future too. Just so much as is necessary for now, planning the acts of justice or charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. He does not want men to give the future their hearts, to place their treasure in it. His ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment passing over him. But we want a man hag-ridden by the future. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future, every real gift which is offered them in the present. Kind of, hear, kind of interesting to hear words from the perspective of a fictional demon in church. Um, but it is a fictional demon, and it's actually the perspective of C.S. Lewis, just so everyone's clear. But I think it rings true. And I think it begins for humans at a very young age. Let's say five or six. If I could just have that toy and have my friend over to play, then I'll be happy and I won't need anything else, Mom. I, I won't ask for anything else. If, you, if I could just, if, if I can just, I just can think of it now. If I can just have Hunter over to play, I won't ask for anything else. Hunter's one of my best friends. Still to this day, I have lunch with him once a month, but we grew up together. And then at 9 or 10, now this one I might be projecting a little bit because this was me. I don't know if this was everybody. At 9 or 10, if the cute girl in class will just circle yes on the note that she likes me, my life will be complete. Was it just me? No. Okay. Good, Logan. You got me. You got me. Man. I remember when I was little, like, kids talking about cooties, and I was like, cooties have never been a thing for me. I was like, I'm looking for my wife. (laughs) And then maybe like, maybe like 13 or 14 If I could just make that team or nail this audition, then I'll finally be established. And I won't need any more acceptance or I won't won't need any more affirmation. I'll I'll have it together if I make the team or I nail the audition, right? And then 16 or 17, oh, if I could just be done with high school (laughs) and actually go study or work in something that I actually am passionate about, then my life will begin. And I'll be content. And then 20 or 21, 
gosh, if I could just finish college and go work in the real world and start contributing something to society, my life will finally have meaning. And then a little later in our 20s, I know what I need. I need to find a spouse that is completely compatible with every like, every interest, (laughs) every opinion. And then I will be content because I have found my soulmate. I have found the one. And then a few years pass. Gosh, um, this job is not nearly as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. Um, I, maybe, you know, I, I, I know what I need. I need a promotion. And if I get a promotion, then I'll have real influence and I'll have enough money to do the things that I love. That's what I need. And, well, I really like being married, but um, I want to leave a legacy on this planet. And so maybe if we just have a couple kids and we raise them well in the Lord, one day we'll be able to pass them the baton and they'll carry it long after we're gone. Maybe this is it. Life is good. But our family's growing, so I think we need a bigger house. And we want to make sure the kids are safe, so we should probably upgrade the cars too. Wow. College is so expensive. How are we going to pay for all of them to go? I need another promotion. Oh, we're starting to accumulate wealth. Maybe I should get more life insurance. Gosh, I can't wait for the kids to be out of the house. We'll save so much money. Oh, shoot. I didn't realize how expensive weddings were. Oh, retirement's just a few years away. How are our investments doing? Who do you think will have kids first? I can't wait to be a grandparent. Oh, now, now that the kids are out of the house, this is, this is great. We could downsize, and that way we could afford a boat. <laughs> ah, there it is. Retirement is finally here. We made it. Hey, honey, has the doctor called yet about those tests? Gosh, I guess I didn't realize how fast things were moving. Now six months seems like a really short amount of time. Okay, God, If you'll just get me through this season, I'll never take another day for granted. I'll be present, and I'll be grateful for every moment. And by the time most of us learn this lesson, it's all but too late. You see, God has placed inside of us a yearning for eternity. But the counterfeit for eternity is the future. And so 
While the true yearning inside of us is for things of heaven, we look at the things to come on this earth and we're always longing for the next season, for the next step, for the next dream fulfilled so that maybe we might feel fully human and fully ourselves. I remember doing a paper in college on Luke chapter 12, one of these passages for a theology class, and now I look back and it's so ironic that since then and during then, I was living the life of the rich fool. So obsessed, so focused on the production of the next week, the next month, the next year. <laughs> this, is my, this is my deathbed message because I don't want any of us to waste any more time than we already have, than I already have, than you already have with our hearts off in the distant future. Too often I personally have given into the temptation of the enemy of my soul. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, I've done it to pursue the rainbow's end and heap upon the altar of the future every real gift that the present has to offer. This message is just as much one of personal repentance as it is one of public teaching. When I consider the lilies and the birds and the grass from, <clears throat> from Matthew chapter 6, I find myself without excuse for my obsession with tomorrow. Because tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I think with this teaching, Jesus would come to us and he would say, what are you waiting for? Do you not realize that I have poured out my spirit upon you for today? Do you not realize that my grace is on your current assignment? Yes, there'll be grace for your next assignment. But can we please cross that bridge when we get to it for goodness sake? Can you just be here now with me and with the people around you so that we can champion the kingdom in this time? Because next time is not guaranteed. Don't you know that the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Now, that's a, it's kind of an interesting phrase. What, now, why is the present the time at which time touches eternity? Because only in the present, we as humans get to experience what God experiences of the entire timeline of existence all the time. Only in the presence of the moment do we step into a preview of that awareness. The present is the point at which time touches eternity. So how do we not give our hearts to the future? Well, I think that the antidote for the sickness of tomorrow obsession is found in that little verse, verse 33 of Matthew chapter 6. 
Most of you will probably be able to say it along with me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You may have heard it said, aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. What does that mean? When we fix our eyes on heaven, when we seek first the kingdom, we get a little bit of earth added to us, just the things that we need. That's what Jesus says. But when we fix our eyes on earth, we realize that to that end is emptiness and that earth doesn't matter without a perspective of heaven. Seeking first the kingdom, I think, fixes our eyes on two moments. This one and eternity. And when we make our lives about those two things, like I said, Jesus adds to us the things that we need. You know, Bill Johnson has this amazing message about that. And he just says this, the struggle of humanity is that as things begin to be added to us as we're seeking first the kingdom, it's so incredibly difficult for us to not put our eyes on them. Because as they're added, they're nice and they're distracting. But as soon as we fix our eyes on them, we have hit our ceiling in the spirit. The challenge of humanity is to continually seek first the kingdom even as the things are added, as the things are added. Let it only be in the background that these things are added because in the end, they don't mean anything without where my eyes are fixed. Now, I want to bring a little bit of balance to this because some of my A-types in here, who I am, are here going, well, what about plans? Plans are good. God likes plans. I get it, okay? I was having the same conversation with God this week. God, I know you talk about the future in the scriptures, and he does. He tells people about things that are to come. He doesn't teach us to be completely unconcerned with the future, to have no perspective of it whatsoever. But hear this. The future orientation that God teaches us is one that only gives regard to the future to the extent which it encourages and inspires us to live the full and abundant life right now. God only wants us to be concerned with the future to the extent which it encourages and inspires us to live the full and abundant life that he has provided right now. To keep an eye on the future is good and helpful But when we make it our primary focus, we lose sight of the opportunities and open doors that are right before us. Now, when I say open doors and opportunities, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about bowing to the sinful passions of the moment. Not at all. There is a distinct difference between living for the moment and living in the moment. There's a difference between living for the moment and living in the moment in the moment. Now, in Luke chapter 12 and Matthew 6, I believe that what Jesus is teaching us is to live in the moment, but for eternity. Fully present, hearts on heaven. Fully present, 
hearts on heaven. Now, when was the last time that you felt a nudging from the Holy Spirit to go talk to someone, to go pray for someone, or just to go sit with someone? And you let yourself off the hook because you just have so much going on. I just, but I have plans. I already have to be somewhere. It's happened for me way too, way too often. See, but I personally believe that seeking first the kingdom sometimes means putting your plans on hold so that we can be fully present and completely available for what God would use us for in this very moment. Now, how can you say that? Why would you say that, God, uh, Seth? Why, why would you say that that's what seeking the kingdom of God looks like? Well, I would say that because that was the way of Jesus. Time after time, Jesus was on his way to accomplish one mission, but he never let it get in the way of ministering to the people around him as he saw their need. He's on his way to heal someone, and all of a sudden, a tug on the garment, and he stops for the woman with the issue of blood. See, Jesus, he was very goal-oriented. Don't, don't get it wrong. He had a vision for the future. Vision's good. Vision and, and, and plans and, and hopes and dreams, those are things that God often plants inside of us. But the difference between Jesus and us, I think, is that Jesus was so perfectly aware of his purpose that he recognized that every breath, every moment, was playing its part in that purpose. And that for him to skip a moment in order to make sure and accomplish the goal would take away from the accomplishment of the goal. Do we know that every breath, every moment is a part of our purpose? Now, the human condition of future focus or tomorrow obsession or whatever you want to call the disease it reminds me of a passage in Exodus 16 when the, the, uh, the children of Israel, they were in the wilderness, and they were complaining. Big surprise. They were complaining a lot in the wilderness. But I think we probably would be too, so I'm not hating on them. It's easy to throw rocks at Old Testament Israel, but really it's, it's a picture of us when we're left to our own flesh and our own sin. So let's be real. Let's be real. Well, if I was hearing the audible voice of God, I would never walk in that way, would you? Would you? I don't know. I don't know. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, so they're in the wilderness, and God sends manna to respond to their complaint. Manna, it means, what is it? It's basically, the, well, it means what is it, but it is bread. It's this mystery bread from heaven. It's this mystery bread from heaven that, that accumulates kind of like dew, and they collect it in the morning, but really interesting instruction from God. Do not collect more than what is needed for that day, except the day before Sabbath. 
And if they collected more than was needed for the day, except for the day before Sabbath, what would happen to the manna? It would rot and become useless. Think about it. I don't think it's any coincidence that in the same chapter that we were just talking about in Matthew, maybe the chapter before, I honestly don't remember. (laughs) I think it's the same one. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. What an interesting phrase. The people who he was talking to knew the story of the Israelites. They knew it very well. It was a part of their heritage. And so for him to pray that, they would have known what he meant. Now I would just ask you, what is the manna, the bread, the daily bread, that God has given you for this time? Will you miss it because you've given your heart to the future? Will you let it rot because it appears as an obstacle to your plans? Will you let the bread of heaven rot and become useless because it appears as an obstacle to your plans? I pray that you won't, but more so I pray that we won't. I pray that I won't and that you won't. Because one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account. Ooh, I don't really like that. It is what it is. We are going to give an account. And I don't think on that day that he is going to be highly impressed with what we planned to do or what we hoped to do, or with what we intended to do, or what we would have done if it wasn't for the time of COVID, or what we would have done if it wasn't for the time of racial tensions, or what we would have done if it wasn't such a time of national division. No, I think in fact, what will move the heart of God on that day will be what we actually did with the time that we had. What will our account look like, my friends? I'm going to read from another book. It's my third favorite book. If you consider the Bible a book, which it's so much more than a book, so I even hesitate to call it that, but the Bible, number one. Number two, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. If you haven't read that book, it will change your life. Number three, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. that offend you? I'm not sorry. I could have said that nicer. I hope it doesn't offend you, but I'm also not sorry. Send me an email. Don't, please don't. Please no. In The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo laments to Gandalf about the dire situation that Middle-earth finds itself in. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given to us. So I'll end with a question. Church, 2020, 
strangest year of my life. What are you doing with the time that has been given to you? Pray with me. Father, we open our hearts to you today. We pray, God, that as your word has been spoken, that we would be changed. God, that I could live in every moment fully present, fully available to you and to those around me. God, so that I would not rob them of my attention. I would not rob you of my attention. I would not rob you of my heart. But that we would see every moment as a gift. Ready to be fully experienced. In Jesus' name.